please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, uh, very much in the very beginning of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And if you could, please, could you stand with me as I read the very first five verses? So what we're reading here this morning is, it's not just any book. These are the words of the Lord, and we want to give reverence to them as I read them this morning. Let me read verses 1 through 5 for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me go ahead and take your seats. I'm going to pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lift our gaze higher than it was when we first walked in these doors. Thank you for our time of worship, of celebrating you, your grace, and your nearness and promises to be with us through all seasons of life, including even as we pass from this life to the next. But Lord, we ask that you would lift our gaze even more, that there would be no other thing, no other person, no other thought that would take priority in our hearts this morning than you. And Lord... Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Worship songs play an important role in the life of a church, right? We sang a lot this morning already. God has granted to us the gift of songs and music that we can express our hearts to him as well as to one another, as the New Testament talks about the mutual edification that happens even as we sing, we, we teach and we admonish one another with songs. Worship songs are important. And as a corporate worship leader of over 20 years, a lot of the music that I listen to, it's worship music. Now, some of you might say, well, don't you have a little bit other and like more genres that you listen to? I don't really have a lot of time to listen to other things. So I know other worship leaders who listen to you 2 and other, other songs or other, other bands and things like that. And you may too, but I, I'm kind of boring in my musical taste just because I just love to sing worship songs to the Lord. But an, a little unknown fact about me, and maybe if you're here from the days back when I was a pastor here and a worship leader, um, is I've tried to write worship songs from time to time. And you might be asking the question, well, why did we never ever sing one of your songs? Well, it's because so far I've not been very good at it. So case in point, one worship writing workshop, worship songwriting workshop that I attended while I was a pastor here, Um, I sang one of my songs, and one of the leaders said, and this is verbatim, that song is boring. 
I did get a laughter. I thought maybe I'd get a little awls. But anyways, I, I have come to, to come to a really great appreciation for the hard work it is to write a worship song. I have a great respect for songwriters and what they do. And as pastors, as worship leaders, we look at songs very seriously. What we sing on Sunday mornings as a gathered church, we, we are intent on in making sure the songs we sing are accurate biblically. Not every worship song is created equal, which you would probably agree with. Sometimes, sometimes a song can be a wonderful song, but it's just that one phrase you're like, yeah, I wish they would have reworded that a little bit. Case in point, now this is going to date me a little bit, but a song written around 1995. Okay, 1995 is a long time ago. Here's a great song with just an unhelpful lyric. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, if you like that song, please don't hit me or throw anything at me. But here's what it seems to be saying is that when Jesus went to the cross, he was thinking above all other things about you or about me. Is that true biblically? Well, biblically speaking, no. Not above all. Yes, he was thinking of us. But we were not the ultimate priority. It's so hard for us in the Western church to evade this individualistic, self-centered overtones that our society puts out there. I mean, all you need to do is go on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Very self-centered thinking that's around us and also it's in our own hearts. I am the most self-centered person that I know. And here in this text this morning, Jesus is actually coming into our world. Even in the midst of difficulty and trials... Jesus intends to give us a freedom that helps us to look beyond ourselves. To look beyond and have our gaze, our countenance lifted to see the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ from this text. As he approaches the cross, Jesus, is, he's, he has the highest priority for us, for himself, to be glorifying the Father and also to be receiving glory to himself. And as the Father is glorified, as the Son is glorified, what we must understand, even in this text, is that our salvation is altogether wrapped up in and guaranteed by this glorification. So in short... God gets the glory, and we get the good. I cannot help but see in your, uh, was it New City Catechism? He says at the very end, it says, He powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. What a coincidence this morning that that's what we have. God gets the glory, and we get the good. I have two points for us to look at this morning. That Jesus is praying for, number one, God's glory, and number two, our good. So let's look at God's glory in point number one. So just by way of context, so at Living Hope Church in Middletown, where I am the church planting pastor, we've been in a series on this gospel, the gospel of John. And it has been an amazing book to study as a church. Time and time again, seeing how Jesus is declared as the son of God. 
Time and time again, he talks about this hour, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, that is coming. But what leads up to this text in chapter 16 is the end of what's known as the farewell discourse. That Jesus is actually spending intentional time with his disciples, not around the crowds anymore. He's intentionally actually talking to them, kind of giving them, hey, this is what's coming. I'm preparing you for when I go to the cross. Even he prepares them for the betrayal of Judas. Betrayal of Judas, where Judas betrays Jesus into the arms and hands of sinners to be taken to the cross. And at the end of chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then we find verse 1 of chapter 17. We see Jesus making this final transition from teaching to prayer. This precedes his betrayal and his pathway to the cross. Here, Jesus, in the beginning of John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he stops and he prays. He's probably between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, but he stops, he prays. And this is the prayer that is often referred to by the theologians throughout church history in one of two ways. They, they either say it's the high priestly prayer or they say it's the prayer of consecration. Either way, either description in my understanding doesn't completely get what this prayer is about. Martin Luther said about this prayer, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart. Our Savior for us opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father. And he pours them all out. And we will see that in these five verses. Luther says it is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Mark Johnson also points out it was offered on the eve of the greatest event of history. It is found in conjunction with the greatest message ever heard in history. And its contents involve the greatest experience that history can ever provide. And furthermore, every sentence within the prayer is bound up with the honor and glory of God. Point number one is God's glory, which Jesus focuses us in on here, even in the beginning of verse 1. As Jesus speaks these words, if you look at verse 1, he lifts up, he's lifting up his eyes to heaven. I want you to notice, it's not often that we see his actual physical description of what he's doing, physical posture, when teaching or praying. So, case in point, if you ever think about the only proper posture to pray is just with your head bowed down, Jesus is actually bursting that category for us this morning. He is lifting his eyes to heaven recognizing that the Father, his Father, is over him. He refers to God throughout this prayer as his Father six times. It's clear, God is his Father, and he's declaring, I am the Son, even as he's praying. But what does he pray for first? He prays for glory. Notice how many times in these very first five verses, he is praying about glory, or the word glorify is used. It's used five times. 
in some way, shape, or form. He's praying all about the glory of God, the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The question we have to ask in this moment is, what is this hour about? Well, this hour Jesus has referred to throughout the entire Gospel of John. John has highlighted it many, many times. The word hour is found 26 times in the Gospel of John. More than any other New Testament book. And it's mostly referencing this specific hour that Jesus had clearly and consistently connected with his death. So, when he says, Father... The hour has come. Jesus is highlighting that he's going to the cross to pay for your sins and my sins. Edward Clink in his commentary says the entire ministry of Jesus has been directed to this moment in time. And now in this prayer of consecration, just before the events of the hour begin, Jesus places this hour before the Father from whom the Son was sent and for whom all the work of the Son was intended. The hour is here. Jesus said in John 12, 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And again, in verses 32 and 33, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John John then records, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew absolutely, perfectly, 100% clearly that this hour was about, it's going to cost him his life. It was about his death. And that's what he's praying for. Think about it. Right before the cross, Jesus prays to the Father, glorify me, lift me up on the cross. Who prays this? Only the Son of God, who willingly desires to follow the Father's will, completely, perfectly, to satisfy what you and I needed him to satisfy. He will be high and lifted up. And first, it's on a cross of death. Nails in his hands and in his feet, hanging by them on a cross of wood. Church, this is a prayer that God the Father delighted to answer. For bound up in this prayer is the means of our salvation. Listen, the whole point of the Gospel of John is wrapped up in John's statement, John 20, verse 31. This is his thesis of the whole book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we behold Jesus praying for this hour and this glorification by the Father of the Son, He's meaning for us to listen in, to have our faith strengthened by his prayer. The fact that he's praying that he would be glorified in this way, that he would be high and exalted on the cross first. So that we would be forgiven. That our sins would be paid for. 
And as we sung earlier, that we would be set free. This, in this act, the Father glorifies the Son. Now, the Son also prays that he would glorify the Father. <laughs> this is amazing because we see this in John 12, 27 and 20, 28. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So note the order of this prayer. So we see Jesus saying, Father, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. But we also see in verses 4 and 5 a flip of this. It's, I have glorified you, Son to Father. And in verse 5, Father, now glorify me, Father to Son. What we see here in the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer is a symmetry that points to his significance of what falls in the middle. So if you will, I know this might sound a little corny, but to me, it's like a glory sandwich. You have glory in the beginning, you have glory at the end, and there's some significant meaning in the morning, in the middle. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the point of this is, this is about God's glory that achieves our good. Now in verse in verse 2 and 3, we see a little bit more of walking out of how the Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. Jesus is glorified by, by the Father by giving him authority over all flesh so that he could give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Now as we think about what that means, the Father, the Father giving this authority and, and the Son giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. It should stop us in our tracks, folks. Jesus is praying a truth about divine sovereignty and election. The Father knows the ones he has chosen to give to the Son so that the Son would give them eternal life. Edward Clink says, by describing the elect, not by their act of faith, but by the action of God, Jesus emphasizes that this entire event is from above. Not only is the Son's glory and authority given to him by God, but so also are those for whom he was sent. Such an important thing for us to get from this. Even in his prayer, Jesus is acknowledging that eternal life is a gift of grace through faith in him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Church, we are recipients of a divine call, a divine choice, a divine gift that should produce humility in our hearts. The glory of God is that he gives this. That we have had our eyes opened up to see the truth of the gospel. God showed his glory in providing us with salvation, not just in the provision of Jesus, but also he gave us eyes to see, to understand if you have known what it means that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, including you, you have eyes to see because God chose before the foundation of the world that you would actually see that. Yes, everyone everywhere is called to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross for us. But we see the gift working itself out when somebody actually does repent and believe. God's moving on their hearts to be open and to come. 
to the glory of the Father and the Son is so in focus from above when someone comes to repentant faith in Christ. That Jesus prays, glorify the Son. Lift me up on the cross that I can secure this salvation for your glory, for the benefit of all those you gave to me, that they may have eternal life. God gets the glory, folks, and we get the good. Which leads to point number two, our good. Look at verse three. This is, we're standing on holy ground before this whole entire thing, folks. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. (laughs) This is the center of what I've called the glory sandwich, our good. It's held together by the glory of God, guaranteed by the glory of God. And it's this, that we would know the God of the universe, that we would know Jesus Christ, his son. In other portions of the New Testament, it says we get to call call God our father. John says in John chapter 3, what is it? It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Folks, this is not something we should just quickly go past. But to slow down and say, wait, God ordained that we would know him. The Bible calls us, before we're Christians, enemies. Sinners under the wrath of God. But because of the gospel and through this eternal life being given by faith, we get to know, not just intellectually, we get to know God personally. Bruce Nilm says in his commentary, it is this, he's describing this eternal life. It is life knowing the Father and the Son. Eternal life is essence, in essence, I'm sorry, in essence, quality of life rather than quantity of life. Let me say that again. Eternal life is in essence quality of life rather than quantity of life. True, it participates in the victory over the grave, which the Son has won through his death and rising, and is therefore endless. But That is certainly not its most important feature. It's life knowing God. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life. It is. But it is as knowledge of the everlasting one. We were made. We were made to experience this. We were made to experience God. And in the absence of it, the human spirit is forever unsatisfied. Augustine expressed it memorably. He says this, you have made us for yourself. Every one of us. God has made us, designed us to find our satisfaction, our pleasure, our meaning, our understanding of everything in God. And he says, our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Oh, have you truly found your rest in this all satisfying one? Or do you find this morning your soul restless? Or you're running after other things, maybe even good things that you think will satisfy your soul. Folks, there is nothing else in all of creation that will satisfy your soul. You were made for God. You can keep searching, but you will not find what you're looking for. If you've not come to faith, to repentant faith in Jesus, come today. He will show you 
forgiveness of your sins. He will show you what does it mean to be reconciled to God and know him as your father. He will show you. Before we come to know God, we, we can, oh, our hearts are so dark. We can be so, so much, even in a church setting, we can think about or have an appearance of religion, but inwardly still be in shambles. So you, you could be here at Grace Community Church. You might even have remembered when I preached back in 2005 or 6 or 7. But if, if you haven't actually turned to Christ in faith yourself, you're missing this. You're missing salvation. You're missing, you're missing God. He has made us for himself. It does not have to be that way. If you know the story of Apostle Paul at all, the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, was a very fierce opponent of the church. He, he oversaw the death of Stephen when he was stoned. He was on the road to Damascus to try to persecute Christians there when he met God. And God opened his eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says later in 1 Timothy 5, or no, 1 Timothy, he says, to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The happy good news of the gospel is this. You may have rebelled against God all your life. You may have held on to your own sense of righteousness up to this point, but never trusted in Christ. You could imagine that you are the worst sinner even. But today can be a day where the light of Christ shines on your heart and you can turn and believe in the one who's even prayed to the Father that he would be put on the cross to pay for your sins. Come, if you've not turned to Christ before, come, repent, believe, find that Jesus Christ is the one who will satisfy not only your sins to be forgiven, but welcome you into an amazing relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of us in Christ who know God, our hearts, as I'm preaching this, even as we talk, I've mentioned Augustine's quote about our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We ache in our hearts, don't we? to know this and grow in this even more. The good thing in, we get from this whole prayer is that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ and His Son, and God continues to invite us in, continues to invite us into feast. A lot of the times, how do we get to know God more? It's through spending time in His Word and praying, being in fellowship with one another, even coming on Sunday mornings. This is the focal point of all God is doing, being together in a local church, celebrating the good news of the gospel, enjoying God as our God and reminding each other, this is our great God. Worship him, love him, be satisfied by him, enjoy his grace. He is the only one that we need. And indeed, he has given us everything we need in Jesus. D.A. Carson says, God is clothed in splendor in the eyes of those who perceive what has been achieved by God himself in the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of his son. To see God's glory, to be given eternal life, these are parallel. And lest the reader miss the point, the two themes are drawn together in verse 3. Eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the true God. True knowledge of the true God. Oh, Grace Community Church, what joy we have in knowing our God and Savior. It is a joy that we realize that everything else in life pales in comparison. And it's a joy that no one can touch, nothing can touch. No matter what we face in our lives, he is sufficient. 
And John Piper says, if our joy is going to reflect the glory of God, then it must flow from a true knowledge of how God is glorious. If we are going to enjoy God duly, we must know him truly. So I already encourage us to think about and spending time more intently in the gospel and in the word in the scriptures. Let me ask you this, though. Does your joy reflect the glory of God this morning? And even as I ask that question, I know some people in here probably carry heavy burdens. That is not a question to to condemn you. It's also, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's a question to try to help you to lift your gaze to the one who can give you that joy. Another question, is his splendor noticeable to you this morning? What, what might be distracting you? A trial? A difficult relationship? Maybe something seems more exciting to you right now than Jesus Christ. We want to we join with Paul when he says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. I think you want to join with me in that. We want to grow in this. We're not perfect in this by any means, but the gospel, through the gospel, Jesus always welcomes us. We have complete, 100% favorable, dis- favorable disposition with the Father. Jesus Christ has paid the way all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where we can come, God, help me to have my gaze on the right thing, you. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite historical figures when I think about theology. He's the great 18th century pastor, theologian, and he, ex- he exemplified what it means to have joy in God. And he did this as he experienced one of the lowest moments as a pastor. When 90% of his congregationalist church voted him out of his pulpit and position that he had had for over two decades. And all for the wrong reasons. Listen to a member of the church council as he records his observation of Edwards, this guy's name is David Hall, he he records in his diary. He says, Edwards received the shock being fired. He received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. Nine days later, Edwards preached a moving, gracious farewell sermon on July 1st, 1750. No animosity, only love for the church that just fired him. You know what happened next? I was just sharing this at our pre-launch meeting on Friday night. They asked them to stay on and fill their pulpit until they can find another pastor. He filled their pulpit for another 15 months. Now, I think of one of the movies that we've watched with our kids, and there's a phrase that says, awkward. Um, But for him, it wasn't awkward. He was defined not by being a pastor, 
He was defined by Jesus Christ, whom his treasure, he found all of his joy and delight in. Now, that may seem out of reach for you and me, but, it, but it's not. God's grace is pow- powerful for us. If we could just ask God, help me to grow one step at a time, grow in deeper joy in you. But this is what Jesus is praying for, that we would know God. And it's all what the glory of God's doing. God's glorifying him, himself and showing himself faithful to his people to give them what they need, to give us what we need. How do we get to know him better? Obviously, we look at the word and be reminded of, of texts like Romans 5.8. If you're aware of your sins, you're struggling this morning. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's not waiting for us to try to clean ourselves up. He's waiting for us to come and receive free grace, all bought by our Savior at the cross. So no matter where you are today and what you have done, believer, you can come to our true God, our Father, repenting and seeking forgiveness. If you do, he is not against you. It is to his glory to forgive you. It is to his glory to invite you to come. He is only against those who are opposed to him and reject him. And there is a day coming for those people who resist him until the day they die. They will not receive this free gift of grace. And that day will be a fearsome day where all who reject Jesus Christ will know for sure what does the wrath of God look like because they will experience it in eternity. Now let me circle back to the glory of God here for us. So I talked about how the, this whole passage is like a glory sandwich. And I want to end here on the bottom half of the sandwich in verses 4 and 5. So Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And here we actually should hear echoes of it is finished. In Jesus' mind, it's already done before he got to the cross. In the second here, we see in verse 5 that Jesus, he gets even more personal with the Father. I see why Luther says he's opening up his heart here. Because he prays and asks the Father to glorify him, to lift him up. This is looking past the cross for Jesus. Looking up. He wants to be glorified, to be back with the Father where he used to be. (laughs) He knows what he's going to do. And now he asks the Father. It's almost, it it doesn't seem that clear to us, but I think it's more of a pleading and knowing it's going to happen, but it's this, we cannot just think Jesus was this unemotional person. But you, you should see a longing here. Almost like, Father, remember me. And remember when we were together in eternity past. Bring me back there again. Bring me back there again. And for us, 
as his followers, we should also hear an echo for us, a prayer of our hearts. We've already talked about it during worship. When we face that day of death, it's like Jesus looking past his death to get to heaven and be in the glory with God the Father. We, we also too ache in that way. We, we, we long for that Father. Bring us to you in heaven now as we pass through the shadows of death. So join with Jesus in praying that yourself. Not that you're going to be glorified, but you're going to be experiencing the eternal joys of heaven all because of Christ. And Jesus, Jesus prays to return back to this glory that he had before the foundations of the world existed. And I love it because John in his, in his book and his recording in Revelation 5 He gives us this picture of what it looks for the slain son of God to be there in heaven. We see in Revelations chapter 5 verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Church, behold the glory of the Son that in this picture he is back at his rightful place at the Father's side. Overseeing all of redemption history. This scroll in his hand, he's in control of everything. And he's unraveling that scroll and the days of history are unraveling before us. But note, he is glorified. He is exalted. The Father has answered every one of his prayers. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. By his blood, he ransomed all of us for God. So as we turn back to worship this morning, let us worship our God and Savior and bring him the glory due his name. For indeed, he gets the glory. And we, folks, we've gotten all of the good. Let's pray. And if the worship team can come back up this moment. Father, these five verses... They're just five verses, but they are packed with such rich meaning for us. Thank you that in your grand design, you're the only one who could have funked this up. You are altogether wise. How you have done this, that you get all of the glory and we get all of the good. as we walk away from this morning 
and we think about our lives. Help us, help us to remember, even when we're struggling to see the good in our lives, that the best good has already been given to us in you, in the gospel. up our time together. I pray that there would be burdens that have been lifted not only just as I'm speaking, but even as we finish in the singing. Even if nothing else goes our way, we can really sing all glory be to Christ because he is the living water that satisfies. Please help us, I pray. Even as we turn to singing, help us lift our gaze to adore you, to be not just giving our praise to you, but to be experiencing your grace that edifies us to sing our praise to you. We lift up us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.